Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Hope you've all been well. How have you been, Hannah? I've been okay. It's been a week since Brexit happened. Yes. We now have our country back. Well, I mean, I don't. No. But you do. You don't count. Yeah, yeah. You do. Yeah, I guess. You like it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Uh, but today's not Brexit. We're not talking about Brexit. Finally, we're doing an episode that isn't about Brexit. Finally. Um, what are we talking about? An equally cheery topic. <laughs> um, we are talking about the lovely Katy Perry. Yes. And also, well, I think also Prince Charles. And Prince Charles. Who wins the award for best supporting act here. Yes. Why are we talking about Prince Charles and Katy Perry? Well, they made the news this week because Prince Charles, who's the, what do they call it? He's like the patron, patron think, saint yes. of of a, an organization called the British Asian Trust. He's the patron saint of India. The basically. patron saint of India. I mean, the royal family is. Yes, they are collectively absolutely. the patron saint of India. The British Asian Trust, which is a, an organization, a charitable organization, is called here in the UK, um, around fighting child labor yes in india and prince charles has just appointed katie perry to be the one of the british asian ambassadors yeah she's not british she's not asian but she's going to fight child labor so she yeah she's qualified to fight child labor i mean yeah it's it's a, it's fascinating. I mean, she's she's quite well known. I think her and Russell Brand both when they were married, um, there was a, a bit of Orientalist imagery. Call back to our very first episode on yeah, Orientalism, long long time ago, long long time, four years ago, almost exactly, um, where we talked about Orientalism and Coldplay and using asian imagery particularly indian specifically indian imagery and indian people as um scenery for a music video for a song that isn't about india and orientalism is that process of of exoticizing romanticizing and idealizing um asian-ness comes from Edward Said and Katy Perry of course is you know pop star has at various points orientalized India um I seem to remember an image of her and Russell Brand on an elephant why not why not um there are elephants in India right yeah yeah I mean I I I guess one of the serious ways to think about it would be to say in a sense, it's sort of too easy to laugh at the ridiculousness of this American, white American pop star who has no particular expertise, no particular qualifications, uh, but is deemed to be qualified to speak on behalf of the charity that is the British Asian Trust, on behalf of India, and is de- is deemed to be qualified to tackle child labor. So, so that that concept in and of itself on the face of it seems ridiculous but it's not unusual it i mean i guess playing devil's advocate for a second why why is this a problem if if we are assume for argument's sake that 
Katy Perry's high profile inv- involvement in this situation helps tackle the problem of child labor? Why is this a problem? Yeah. Uh well. I mean, so well so we haven't even gotten around to the phrase that is the what we're talking about today, no, which haven't. is this concept of the white savior. And we when we first talked about possibly doing this episode, we had to kind of think about have we talked about white saviors before because it's it's very on brand for us. Yes. Um and we figured that we've probably men- maybe mentioned it kind of on the off chance, but we haven't devoted an episode no. to the concept of the white savior. And part of that is because I think we, we just assume that our audience knows what it is. And it's quite a simple concept for a lot of the people that listen to us because we're kind of preaching to a little choir here. But but given it is, given it is apparently such a simple concept, you know, the, the question, why is this is still a thing? Why is it still a thing? Yeah, and this is such a blatant, obvious example of it being a thing um, that it got us interested in talking about it. I mean, so as the as the white lady on the pod, um, I should, and as a white lady from California, Katy Perry is also from California. You have much a, to answer for. There's a real impulse um among a certain subset of the population, the kind of white population in California, um, to embrace a kind of liberal spiritualism that is associated with um, the Orient, with the East. Is that something that's familiar to you from your like lived experience? Yes, absolutely, a thousand percent, yes. Um, we should probably link to the Joama G videos or maybe just mention them and not link to them. I, I don't know. Do you want to explain um, who, who, who so she is? Joama G is a YouTube was. I don't know if she's still. We haven't seen her for a long we time. We haven't seen her for a while, but she she's a well-meaning uh, white North American girl, young woman who spent some time in India and created a series of YouTube videos about her time in India, and her name is Joanna, um, and she calls herself in her YouTube videos Joanna G, which is a, a what would you call it? A it's nonsense. N- right? It's it's like a nagrisization. Yeah. yeah, it's just taking the word Ammaji, which literally means ma- mother. Yeah, and adding it to Joe in a way that makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah. And it's, and she wears a bindi and talks about and you know it's a, a lot of it is it tries to be complimentary of her time in India. You know, do you want to do an, your impression of her? Oh, well, it's not it's not really an impression of her per se, but it she taps into a, a genre of white people and white women in particular because that's what I am who appropriate kind of spiritual language um and because i grew up in the bay area i have an alter ego and it's my it's my spiritual alter ego and um my spiritual alter ego is um well she's she's really interested in peace and harmony um and she doesn't love politics talking about politics because it's um, it's not a good vibe. And um, she's really interested in just making connections with people and finding our kind of shared humanity. And 
um, finding this sort of the shared thing that brings us together and like gives us all life. And that thing is, you know, some people call it God, but you know, you don't have to call it God. You know, if you're spiritual, you can call it whatever you want. It could be love, right? A lot of people, I like to think of it as love, like, like really in my soul and in your soul, like ultimately all we're made of is love. And if we recognize that, then um, any sort of differences we have, you know, just like fade away and we can just, you know, exist together in love. If you're from California, I've spent any time in California or have watched Shit's Creek, you will recognize this. We did an episode on Marianne Williamson. We did. I think that's that's a connecting. It's the closest we get. Yeah. yeah. And it's that the we spoke about the whiteness of this sort of apolitical spiritualism. But and so you know, go on, go and go and listen to that episode if you if you uh, haven't already. But I guess one of the things then we are we are thinking of here is the effects that genres you use the use the word genre that genre of thought, if it is thought, um, that the effect this might have on the object of Orientalist ideas right yes the orient within within scare quotes so going back to my devil's advocate question why is any of this a problem if it helps tackle a, an important issue in other words Katy perry is doing something good isn't she yes well i mean is she though like in the sense of of um why celebrities do philanthropy or why celebrities do awareness. Um, quite famously, Band-Aid. Um, it, oh, my God, what's his name? The Band-Aid guy. Spectre. Yeah, that's his name, right? This is Spectre. He quite famously got, he's been asked in interviews, you know, why don't you just donate money? Why do you make, produce a, a, Christmas pop song and then donate the profits of it and you raise awareness. Why don't you just donate your some of your considerable income to charity and not say anything about it? And he always says, well, no, I don't, I would never donate my money. So rich people can donate their time and celebrities donate their time and their, and their celebrity, but they don't ever donate their money in the same way. But there is still money, you know, so I'm, I d- agree with all of this. I'm keep going, yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. There are people who are getting help that wouldn't otherwise get help. Yes. Why is this a bad thing? How dare you try to stop it, you monster? Why is it a bad thing? Well, part of it is, I think, in material terms, there are a lot of organizations based in the subcontinent that are actively working on the issues that white saviors also become interested in and have been working on those issues in many cases for decades. Uh, And those organizations are embedded in communities that they're working in. They are um, politically more marginalized. Um, And if they don't receive the kind of attention that an organization like the British Asian Trust receives, they're less likely to receive a kind of material benefit 
from it. So people are less likely to donate because you don't know if if you don't know the organization exists, you can't donate your charitable funds. So attention, media attention, and star power and celebrity power equals awareness and then equals donations, which means that you have more capital to play with. Um, if you are if you are channeling funding away from organizations that are rooted in the context that you're working in, you miss out on a lot of the legwork that those organizations have already done. So you're not efficient. Um, you're not mobilizing networks that are already in place. Um, you're overlaying onto the, the work and the kind of legwork and grunt work essentially that has already been done. You're overlaying a different set of values and, and taking credit for the grunt exactly work that, that, that has been done and i i mean uh in a slightly odd way the the theory that i've this reminds me a little bit of is and we'll we'll try and link it in the in the comments uh there is an article by stuart hall called cultural identity and diaspora yeah um he's not talking what the, the main focus of his article isn't isn't really uh relevant to us but he makes this point that Identity is a process, right? Identity isn't an object. It isn't mm. a finished thing. It's always a becoming. It's not a being. Yeah. And because identity is always becoming, what we think of as cultural representation, like literature, cinema, music, advertising, so on and so forth, all of these things don't take a ready-made idea and represent it. They construct an idea in the in the process of representing it they create a certain set of narratives. Yeah. So one of the things that the 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 genre of the white savior does is construct and then perpetuate a a binary of victim and savior. Mm-hmm. So whether or not a certain proportion of money gets channeled into a certain number of good causes and that in itself is an if because sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't in the process you are reconstructing the sense of europe being the donor europe being the benefactor and the rest of you the rest of the world asia africa south america being the helpless victims which need aid yeah um and europe knows best as to how to distribute it yeah where the priorities lie who's who needs most yeah and so on and so on yeah and uh, it can they yeah. construct the problems themselves yes and do you want to give an example of that actually well this example yeah so the example of child labor in the indian context Anthropologists have known for many, many decades that the concept of the child in the first place is culturally contingent and context matters when we think about childhood and when we think about children. And the Western idea of childhood constructs a child in a very particular way. And all, you know, all human beings, according to kind of our framework, are are worthy of dignity and deserving of dignity. Um, The dignity that children are granted in Western European and North American discourse 
is a very particular form of dignity that in many cases actually denies them dignity and agency. And when you transfer a kind of European set of ideologies or kind of ideas about what an Indian kid should be like, the kind of life an Indian kid should have, you discount the kind of context-specific lives that Indian kids often live. And so you discount a whole host of structural factors that go into what it means to be an Indian kid. And this is really significant in a place as massive and diverse as India because your childhood is not the kind of childhood that Katy Perry is talking about. There are a lot of kids in India who participate in economic activity for various structural reasons that are context-specific. But when you frame a person as a child, and when you frame labor that they do for many structural and complex reasons as bad, as something that needs to be tackled, you potentially create so-called solutions to a problem that you've constructed in a particular way. And the solutions might exacerbate actual problems. So this is, so you see particularly in um, uh, legislation in um, factories of Western corporations that have factories in Asia where um, rules and regulations around uh, so-called, you know, child labor come into play without creating any alternatives for kids that were formerly working in factories. If they're, you know, 14, 15 year old kids who are, you know, the heads of their households without any alternatives, what you end up doing is you shut down certain forms of labor and often force them into even more exploitative and vulnerable forms of labor, often sex work, for example. So the construction of the problem is child labor, according to American, North American, European ways of thinking about children and work means that you miss, you miss the context so that the, the problem might not actually be the problem you think it is. And, and th- that, that's exactly the, the, the point for me that Hall is making about identity being a process, right? Yep. Because identity is a process, it has a genealogy. It comes from somewhere. It isn't, it isn't static through history. So the the same force, if you like, or the same same person or the same institution that thinks of child labor in India in, in the abstract sense of something that has existed through history in its sameness will not consider the 14-year-old British kid who has a paper round on Saturday mm-hmm. to be labor. Yep. Right? That's a Saturday job. Uh, and there, there's, there's so many different examples of apparently similar economic activities given drastically different meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the example that springs to mind for, for some reason is the comparing the 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 build-up to the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games and the 2012 London Olympic Games. A lot of the British media coverage of the Beijing Olympic Games was full of, you know, this the evil Chinese state 
demanding free labor through processes of human rights abuse. I'm not discounting the human rights abuse that China does, but the the entirety of the game games was reflected through that lens. Yeah. Right? So the the people who were working for the games were presented as victims. They were uh being being uh forced into labor that was not conducive to the kind of olympic spirit that we want was the narrative fast forward 4 years for the 2012 olympic games and you had the idea of the games makers yeah who were these laughing smiling volunteers who were going to demonstrate how london will make the games how exactly are these two things different yeah considering the games makers are being paid. paid yes and it might be a minor example and as i said i'm not discounting the various human rights abuses that the chinese government stands accused of for, for uh very legitimate reasons but what i am interested in is what at what point do situations contexts environments that apply to people of color get labeled as a problem yeah and at what point does it not get labeled as a problem yeah. and and how does the the problem then get given given a cause and a solution by white europe and north america yeah and the so you have the the making of the problem the making of the problem is very very rarely tied back to Europe's complicity in creating the problem. So you have, when you talk about child labor, one of the reasons child labor is a thing in the context of certain Asian places where Apple sets up a factory, where Banana Republic sets up a factory, where Nike sets up a factory, you know, the the construction of an economic system around sort of globalized consumption creates the conditions for child labor in a lot of ways. And there is absolutely no recognition that the problem might have to do with a certain form of capitalism. The problem is the government, the, the national government or the local government doesn't legislate properly and doesn't uplift using scare quotes, uplift its poorest, most vulnerable citizens out of poverty. So in the entire discourse surrounding Prince Charles's appointment of Katy Perry as as the British Asian uh, ambassador to the British Asian Trust, there is no sense at all of the ways in which the same economy that gives Prince Charles and Katy Perry their celebrity, their positions of authority that system of economy is directly dependent on child labor yeah right child labor isn't just a thing that happens out there that needs to be policed and managed out there we live off all of us live off the the proceeds of child labor yeah there is no such thing as ethical consumerism and capitalism yeah um and it's 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 one thing to accept that as something that isn't in our power to solve capitalism isn't necessarily in our power to 
dismantle. To dismantle. It's another thing completely to go, I know how to solve it. It has nothing to do. The problem is not my problem, but I have the solution. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there's one aspect of this is the arrogance that allows you to, to, to believe that you can solve it. And then there is the, the effect that arrogance has on uh, forms of culture. You mentioned Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the, there is a particular vocabulary of TV documentaries that, that plug into this, this narrative of the white saviour so clearly, oh, reinforcing yes. the kind of binaries that we're talking about between you know, white saviour and, and, and non-white victim. Um, if you if you're in Britain, you might know of Comic Relief, yeah. Children in Need, annual events which raise money to save the world. I can't, I'm using scare quotes again. Yeah, and these pro the programs are so often marked by a famous white celebrity who goes out, you know into the the darkness of Africa or Asia and finds people there who need saving. Yes. In a way that is quite sort of missionary. Yeah. Right? There is oh, yeah. there is a, there is an evangelical missionary history to the, the the concept of the white savior. I mean, it's in the word, it's savior, right? Yeah. Um and I guess one of the things I'd like to think like us to think about a bit more following Hall's idea of cultural representation helping to construct construct identities is this very familiar form of documentary which on the screen typically takes the form of a white person in the middle on whom the camera is focused who gets to speak and they are surrounded by non by, by large numbers of non-white people who are pre- present in their numbers rather than as individual human beings uh, often you will have an adult white person, often an adult white woman with a non-white child sitting on her lap. Princess Diana. Madonna? Yeah. I mean, th- there's... Angelina Jolie. There's so many examples of this uh, from both, you know, a few months ago, Stacey Dooley in Britain uh, did, a, did a documentary when she went out to Uganda, I think it was, um, and did, you know, exactly the same kind of program. And every time a, a program like this gets made, there is the progressive critical response that goes, you know, why is this still a thing? And then there is a conservative response going, they're doing something good, you're not doing anything to help, and you are sitting on the sidelines and sniping. What is wrong with raising awareness? Yes, and, and, and I, I guess this is this is what I'm trying to get to, is part of what is wrong, and this is only part of what is wrong, is the way in which the documentaries form in terms of where it's placing the camera, who is given a voice, who is allowed to speak, is creating the need for itself, as it were. It's this cycle of need where, which is always going to be reinforced because the, the saviour will always have to be white the people who need saving will always be people of color and there is too much money to be made for european capitalism 
for this to not be the case. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to, so it is quite literally a band-aid uh, because, <laughs> because what you're doing is allowing the system to continue while making it look like you're not, you're not allowing the system to continue. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a broader kind of, it's the industry of philanthropy. Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are, are, I think, a really good example because Bill and Melinda Gates, and now Mark Zuckerberg has hopped on this this bandwagon. I mean, he has to defend himself somehow. <clears throat> he does. He has to do good somehow. Uh, where the, I mean, the Gates Foundation very famously identified this issue of the, the grand challenge. And grand challenges are, they construct problems in the i mean i guess at the time it was still called the third world um you know the developing world of the global south and they construct problems that are scientific in nature so kind of it builds interest in science and technology and innovation and he identify they identify kind of these big large-scale problems that often have to do with health or the environment and they are identified as problems that have scientific and technological solutions. And so the funding goes to massive teams of experts located around the world, partly in, in the place where the issue is identified and partly in Europe and the United States. And they create these teams of experts to create a technological fix to a very particular problem. And malaria is a classic example. So... I mean, malaria is a, it's a serious problem, right? Like malaria kills people and, you know, why not try and tackle malaria? But by identifying malaria as the problem and not the pharmaceutical industry as a capitalist industry that doesn't and can't create drugs for free, then you construct a problem in a particular way. And if you then create solutions, those solutions revolve around mosquito nets. They revolve around um, trying to convince people to change behaviors. They revolve around local policy initiatives without ever having to dismantle a globalized capitalist corporate system where pharmaceutical companies can eradicate infectious diseases because Bill Gates himself is part of that system. And so the, the grand challenges have a monopoly on and philanthropists have a monopoly on identifying the problems in the first place. And science is particularly dangerous, I think, because science and scientific problems are, are given quite a lot of weight and significance. We trust scientists and we, we trust medics and doctors to identify problems but conveniently the solutions are also limited and and we we trust science and and you know we've spoken about the the importance of expertise and we're not you know we're not anti-expert oh yeah we love a doctor but um we trust science in a way that is not political yes exactly We, we see we see science as apolitical and because we see science as apolitical, the the problems that science identifies as needing solving 
become apolitical problems, right? Yeah. Uh, so, as you said, malaria becomes an, an issue that can be solved with technology as opposed to an issue that has a socioeconomic context that is propping up, is a symptom of, of what the inequality that is propping up the life we all have and the system that allows Bill Gates to get to the point where he can donate billions of dollars. Yep. In the first place. <clears throat> yep. Um, this, the the particular genre of documentary I was describing, you know, Stacey Dooley is an example and, and, and there are many others. Um, I know this from in the British context. Is there a similar American context? Is there a, the, the philanthropic documentary designed to raise awareness and raise funds and shown on national TV? Is that an American thing as well? Um, I mean, we don't really have national TV, so there's that. I don't. So that the the most obvious example I can think of is actually Ellen DeGeneres, the Ellen DeGeneres Show, which isn't documentaries. She will, and and they're usually American focused. So the the guests that she has on her shows tend to be American, but from marginalized or oppressed groups. Or, I mean, Ellen is infamous for creating child laborers in the form of small children who sing really good um and jump starting the careers of of young very young pop stars but she'll have people on her show who are um like often there are kids who are lgbtq who um ask to bring a same-sex partner or a non-binary partner to a prom and who are told they can't or kids who who uh, are identified as being girls by their school, but who identify as boys and want to wear a tuxedo to prom and aren't allowed to, those kinds of things. So she'll often have those types of stories on her show. Um, most recently, a young man was told he had to cut off his dreadlocks for graduation from his high school um, because it was it, the, the kind of standard story about white people being afraid of of black kids with dreadlocks um and she had him on her show and so she has these kind of it's called the personal interest story um and she has kind of created a sort of mini documentary and then she'll like donate some money or raise awareness or whatever and that is it's the kind of chat show context that has become really popular in the last few years is oprah part of this discussion yeah 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 oprah definitely was because what I, 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 the reason i'm asking is how does oprah's race change things here because she clearly isn't a white savior yeah no so how does how does an oprah change this genre compared to an ellen DeGeneres? yeah well <sighs> and i'm thinking of you know, the 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 the, the Perhaps the only bit of Oprah I know is, you know, you look under your chair and you've got one, you've got one, you've all got, yeah, you know, like that, the the feel good, the production of feel good telly by getting poor people on and giving them things. Yes. And presumably rich people who are watching the program can feel good about the fact that poor people are getting things. And other poor people can feel good about the fact that they might wear, might one day get to go on it and get things as well. Yeah. Which which seems to me what Oprah's about. Well, no, Oprah's more about uh, wealthy people or people who are fine, middle-class yeah. people, watching poor people get stuff yeah. and feeling good that 
by watching and consuming the imagery, they get to be part of it. They get to feel like they too are giving. So what does Oprah's own race, racial identity, do to this this genre of the white savior? Yeah, well, I mean, Oprah was fascinating because she she was quite ground like she was pathbreaking. And in terms of representation, she's been really important. And she's like been involved in making really important progressive art as well. She isn't just a talk show host. And, you know, like she, her, her endorsement was a big thing for Obama and, and, and yeah. so on. So, so there's, you know, in, in, the, in mainstream democratic politics, she's a presence. Yeah, yeah. and she has her book club, um, which is interesting. Oprah's book club is a... a, a I mean, she doesn't run it, right? It's she's got somebody that runs it, but really high profile, some very high profile writers, particularly writers of color, in the '90s and early 2000s, in particular, were made famous by Oprah, as were, you know, the various kind of scandals, um, the kind of the books that turned out to be fraudulent or whatever. Also, also part of Oprah's book club, but she. She was unique in that I think one of the feel-good aspects of her was that people got to be white saviors by proxy because she wasn't one. Yeah. So, like, white people got to watch Oprah and feel like, yeah, I like Oprah. I totally believe in how important she is and and how paradigm-shifting she is and how she's this kind of new and important voice, especially for black women. And by watching her show, you get to participate and be a white savior, but not be a white savior because you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is watch television and Oprah does it for you. It's a really fascinating thing, but I think that's what Oprah does. And I think Ellen does it, does it for uh, liberal middle class and upper middle class Americans who like to think of themselves as not homophobic. Uh, that is one of Ellen's key purposes is she makes people feel like they accept gay people, especially people who may not have accepted gay people 10, 15 years ago, but who do now. And it, it's a kind of white savior by extension. It's a, it's a really fascinating phenomenon. And and the, the thing it has in common is it reinforces the, the the savior who saves and the victim who needs saving. Yes. Right? I have something to give to you. I've identified a problem that you have. You might be gay, you might be poor, you might, you know, you might not be able to go to college, you might not have access to books. Yeah, you might have a disability. Yeah, all of whatever the problem is, I've identified it in you and I can solve that problem by giving you stuff. Yeah. And in your emotional reaction to the stuff that you've got from me, is entertainment. Yeah. Right? That's that's the feel-good bit of it, where millions of people at home in their living rooms on telly watches you tearfully accepting my gift and feels good about the fact that the world is now a better place because yeah. you've got stuff for me. Yeah. That's grim. Is that really cynical even for us? I think it is. I think it totally, I mean, but so, so to be fair, like, I think we should acknowledge the fact that we are affected by this emotional mis- yes, absolutely. manipulation absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it, especially, um, 
for me, it's stories about kids. It's usually stories about kids that get me. Um, Ellen, I've I've had less and less interest in recently, and that is because she's gotten more and more patronizing. So what's really effective is when the the person doing the giving, when the the savior is doing the savioring, if when they aren't patronizing and when they are active, the performance that they're putting on is actively reducing the the reminder of that power imbalance. This is where Prince William and Kate Middleton are really, really good on show. Like when they go out on tour and they talk to people, some of the conversations that they're recorded having with people are explicitly like really down to earth and not patronizing. They ask, Prince William has gotten really, really good at figuring out how to ask questions that look like he's showing genuine interest in people without patronizing them and that is an incredible bit of PR and it's really evocative in the right moments and we you know I will tear up when when a celebrity is nice to a kid yeah and and I guess we need to be suspicious of those emotions in ourselves yeah because capitalism is very good at generating emotion in order to generate profit yeah. And and that's what capitalism is at the end of the day. It's generating profit. That's the point. It it, it needs profit. Um I think that's probably a good point to stop. Uh you mentioned something at the front of the episode, which we went through in passing, but we should probably come back to. Uh this weekend is our fourth anniversary. Yeah. Um The have- podcast is growing up. We are very grateful to everyone who's st- stuck with us, old friends, new friends. Um, we are, you know, it mean it matters a lot to us that people listen. I know. I think we did not think we would get past three or four episodes. No, we certainly didn't. I don't think we ever thought that anyone except our mothers would listen. I know. If um, my mom doesn't listen. <laughs> my mom does. My mom does not listen. Um, but, you know, Thank you for for sticking with us. And we've got new things on the way. We've got new things in the pipeline. We've got new new guests planned. We've will will you will soon soon hear other voices on here than the two of us. Yes. Um, so stay tuned. And here's to the next four years. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.